Jack, how are you doing? Good, Thomas. I love what you're wearing. <laughs> well, I wore that for you. I want you to know that. I wore that for you. Thank and you. I had a call with some guys in London uh, this morning, and they said, dude, what are you wearing? And I said, this is Alberta Pride, man. You have to rock it. Yeah, are you at the office today, I guess? Every day. Oh, every day, nice. Yeah, every day, every day. Yeah, even, you know, they, they closed it down, and they said, we want you to uh, remain home. And I think I lasted maybe four days. And that was six months ago. But, I mean, I'm the only guy here. So you register the night before. Yeah. You mask up until you're at your door. And then uh, it's easy. And and my papers are here. And I'm kind of an old school guy. Like, I'm kind of a paper and fountain pen guy. And I got my books. I got my binders. I got my files. So that's just the way that I like to do things. How long have you been in this office for? Since the late 80s. So this, like I've been at this firm for almost 40 years. I went away to England to do my master's in 88. Yeah. Building was built in 88, 89. And when I came back from London, we moved in here. We haven't moved. I mean, it's the old, used to be called Canterra. And then Canterra was taken over. And now it's called the Devon Tower. And it's still, you know, it still works out pretty well. It doesn't look like it's a 40-year-old building, but uh, it, it, uh, it works out reasonably well. I love that clock. Is that a clock behind you? It is. So um, my dad passed away in August and we'll probably talk about him a little bit in the conversation. And uh, he had that clock, you know, probably for 40 years. It's from 1790. It's a, I mean, it's 300 years old. Right. And when he bought it, he always would work on it, work on it. And he could keep it so that it was uh, accurate to within about 10 minutes an hour, <laughs> 10 minutes an hour. That's not very good. So when he passed away, we didn't really want to put it in storage. My mom couldn't look after it. So my brother said, why don't you put it in your office? So I brought it in here and I cleaned it and I oiled it and I kind of rewound it. And right now it's accurate within a, probably a minute, an hour, a minute, every three wow. hours. So it works out pretty well. It's a nice clock. Yeah, it is. It's a great, it's a great old clock. So. Beautiful, beautiful. So Thomas, I mean, let's start with your journey. You, get, you guys are fourth generation Canadian or how many generations now? Yeah, that's exactly right. So my great grandpa, Cuthbert Thomas, was a carpenter in Ireland. And in 1909, I think he got a letter from his friend and his friend said, there's a little city in, in Western Canada, it's called Calgary, and they need carpenters. That's mm. your future. So he talked to his wife and the six boys and great grandma and great grandpa came across, I think they came across on the Halifax, HMS Halifax, and then they took the train to Calgary and they got out. And uh, so great grandpa and his six boys, one of them was my grandfather, Bert, came to Calgary. And uh, so we've been here a long time. We've, we've been here not as long as the city, but we've been here almost as long as the province, right? Because the province was established. Right now, did you get a chance to meet your grandpa? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, I remember him well. And uh, he was uh, left right after high school, joined the army. So he fought in the First World War. In the First World War, he was a cavalry officer, rode a horse, and that's why... Uh, my mom says, that's why I like to ride horses. And uh, then when the war was over, he became a Mountie. 
And so he rode a horse as a Mountie. And then in the Second World War, when that broke out, he re-enlisted, went back and fought. And so he fought in the First War and the Second War. Imagine and, what uh, they went through. They grand, great-grandpa and grandpa and the lifestyle that they were living back then and how fortunate we are. Oh, absolutely. And they would look at our world today and they'd say, I can't believe this is how you live. And they'd also say, I can't believe this is what you guys worry about. Right? They, they would look at the things that we worry about and they say, are you kidding? Those are your worries? Let me tell you about the war. Let me tell you about the Great War. Let me tell you about the Second War. Let me talk, talk to you about those wars and those worries. And let me talk to you about the Depression. Right? They, they would look at our worries today and they would be surprised. And the ways that when it's peace and quiet, we start creating problems for ourselves. Well, I mean, you know, there's lots of people who have written just about that, right? The hierarchy of needs and the fact that, you know, in some instances, you don't, you know, you don't really have pressing problems and you kind of search around for unhappiness and you search around for problems that really aren't there. When you look back at, I guess, your, your lineage, do you have some of your grandfather's or great-grandfather's traits in you? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I never knew my great-grandfather. Of course, he was gone before I was here. Uh, my, my grandfather, I, I think he was a handyman. And my dad said uh, it skips a generation. My dad was not very good with tools. But my, I guess my great-grandpa, Tommy, he was a carpenter. He was handy with his tools. Bert was handy with his tools. My grandpa, uh, you know, was a, a cavalry officer, liked to ride horses. Uh, my grandfather was a photographer. I love photography, always have. And so it, it would probably be the case that some of those traits, you know, have percolated down through the generations. And, and I've got some of those traits. Wow. Now, on your grandmother's side, where are they from originally? So... Um, that, that's kind of an interesting story, actually, because my, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, so my mother's mother uh, and my mother's uh, grandmother, um, she was a mulatto woman. She, she was a mixed-race woman in the U.S., and uh, it was tough in those days. So they moved up to uh, Montana and uh, worked as a kind of a, a chambermaid and then crossed into the border into uh, southern Alberta. And so that side of the family, my mom's side of the family, they were Germans and farmers and uh, they had to kind of prove the land so you could, you could apply for land in those days. And they came across from New Munich, Minnesota. They moved across into Southern Alberta, the Milk River area. And so they were farmers down in the Milk River area. So that was kind of an interesting time. And it was kind of an interesting history. And my mom went away uh, to the convent. In those days, you go to the convent for your education. And then she won a scholarship to St. Louis. And, and they tell the story about, you know, the hired hand driving my mom and her trunk from uh, Milk River down to St. Louis and dropping her off for her university. So, okay, we'll come back and get you in three years when you're done. So that's what they did. And, and life was so different back then. It was, it was a completely different time, but some great stories. And some of those stories are starting to be lost, but a lot of those stories are starting to be, you know, re, uh, you know, become more interesting once again. 
you know, the stories about my grandpa, Bert, fighting in the war. We hunt around, and we find these great old pictures of him, you know, in his 20s, sitting on his horse as a cavalry officer. And similarly, my mom, when she was just a young, uh, you know, uh, nursing teacher at, at, at the Holy Cross Nursing School. So I think we have pictures of uh, your grandfather on the horse. I think you've put it on Facebook before. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, that's a good memory. Yeah, that was, uh, uh, I think I did, I usually do a little tribute to my grandpa around Remembrance Day. Okay. Nice. And how was your dad? Who was your dad to you? I know he just passed away. Oh, yeah, dad was great. Oh, he was such a a wonderful man. You know, he was uh, kind and gentle and and even that. You know, my brothers and sisters, that's our saying now, when you've got a, a, a challenge, a puzzle to solve, you say, what would dad do? What would dad do? Mm-hmm. And, and he was he was a, a fun guy, and he was a hardworking guy. And I think I posted a picture of him, and he looked like a million bucks. I thought he was kind of in his late 40s. And when I did the, the math, he had just run in the Alberta Marathon Championships. He was almost 60 years old at the time. Nice head of black hair, a nice flat stomach, a nice muscle definition. And, and my brother Steve said, it looks like Sean Connery. If James Bond ran a marathon, that's what he really got <laughs> the hair and everything. Oh. Yeah, it looked like a million bucks. But yeah, that, that was, and it was sorry. You know, it was, it was really sad. It was wonderful that we could be there when dad passed, but it was sure a tough time for us. Because he was, was it expected for dad to pass? Yeah, it was. I mean, we could see him failing. We went to his 90th birthday and, you know, he was moving slowly. He was speaking well, but he was in a lot of pain. And then he, you know, he had a bit of a fall and his spine broke. His spine was full of cancer. And uh, when he was really unable to walk and relegated to a wheelchair, we sensed that the end was near. And, and we were right. So, we, you know, we were there to say our goodbyes. When you were growing up, was your dad an athletic man and made you go adventure around Alberta? Or what made you fall in love with taking photography? That was your grandfather, right? Yeah. So my, my grandfather, now by the time I knew him, I mean, he had broken his hip and, and he didn't move that well. So I didn't really learn photography from him, although I see his pictures that we go through. We find all these old slides. In, in those days, a lot of people you know, shot slides. And so we said, oh, look at all these family treasures. And we opened them up and there's a bunch of pictures of flowers. And we said, well, that's not what we were expecting. So I didn't really know my my uh, grandfather's photography side, but I, you know, I, I know that that was of interest to him. With respect to my dad, he was neither a photographer nor an outdoorsman. I mean, he worked hard. In those days, you'd sort of work six days a week, right? You'd go uh, full days, Monday to Friday, and then, you know, half a day or more than half a day on Saturdays. And he used to always say, you know, I have six kids. My mom and dad had six kids in about nine years. And uh, he said that, so it was good to go to work. <laughs> he would like a little peace and quiet. So he would go off to work and leave, leave mom to look after all these little ones. And so he wasn't really a, an outdoorsman. Uh, the church was always important to him and community was always important to him. And, and, you know, when you look at, when I look at the, you know, the contributions that I give to the community as a volunteer, it really pales in comparison. I mean, that's why we always say my brothers and sisters, what would dad do? Because he was always given to the community. He was always given to the church. 
he was always giving of his time. And so that was really the focus of his 90 years. You know, it's so beautiful to see that because most people can say, well, I'm busy with work. I, I have six kids. I work six days a week. I, yeah. I need time to rest. But dad still made time for church, time for the community. Oh, yeah, Re- really very much so. And, and mom was the one that got him into sports. And I remember when Princess Island was just an island, right? There wasn't very much there. We had a family picnic. And they had just put in a fitness track around the perimeter of Princess Island. And in those days, Dad smoked a pipe. And he went for a run after our little picnic lunch. And he couldn't go all the way around the island. He says, that's terrible. And, and Mom was just starting to run. So she encouraged Dad to run. And they used to go to Mount Royal College, now Mount Royal University. And there was a fitness track there. And so Mom and Dad would do that. And then he became more and more interested in running. And then he became more and more interested in running a marathon. And so dad and I ran marathons together probably for 10 years. And I think his last marathon was probably Boston when he was 66. He went down and ran the Boston Marathon. So he went from being kind of a a pipe smoking gentleman and uh, not really that fit uh, to being quite fit. And so he, you know, exercise was always important to him and to mom. Because you really have to qualify for the Boston Marathon, don't you? You do. That's right. Now, this was different because this was the 100th. So when they had the 100th, they changed the rules and they made it easier for people to qualify. His time would probably not have qualified him in the ordinary rules. But for the centenary, for the 100th Boston, they expanded the field from about 6,000 to 35,000. And he went down for that. Has dad and yourself sat down and said, what happened to our city over these years? It's just grown <laughs> in so many oh, ab- Absolutely. And in fact, you know, even my dad said that, but also, you know, I remember talking to my uncle Lou and, and my uncle Lou was the youngest of those, I think the youngest of those six boys that came over with Tommy the first, you know, and uncle Lou was a businessman. And he used to tell the stories of walking down the 8th Avenue mall and you'd see a guy say, I've never seen him before. He must be new in town. And you'd go and introduce yourself, right? Because you knew all the business people, right? In the 1950s, you knew everybody who was doing business in the city of Calgary. And and uh, as I said at the outset, you know, whether it's Uncle Lou or my grandpa Bert or my great grandpa Tommy the first, um, you know, they would not imagine what they see. And, and they would have seen the boom days and they would have seen, you know, the, the, Western pride and the pride and the power of Calgary. And then they'd look at it today and they'd say, what's happened? Like, like where, where did all the swagger go? You know, how is it that this industry of ours, uh, this really troubles me. How is it that this industry of ours that really fuels the whole country is, is being so uh, criticized And, and why is it so difficult? And I, you know, I, I teach these courses around the world on international oil and gas law. And I used to go over to Asia and meet with the Japanese. And they would say, you know, we appreciate this and we appreciate that, that knowledge. But candidly, we don't think we can get any enthusiasm to invest in Alberta because we don't, we don't think you guys could build a playground, let alone a pipeline. Right. So, you know, we're, we're, our investment dollars are going to go somewhere else. And that's what we've seen. And we keep hearing, oh, diversify, but there's only so much you can diversify. with all the Oh, yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, to be fair, 
the the en- energy is always going to be important and the energy industry is always going to be important but it's going to be a different energy industry than it was 20 years ago just as it's a different energy industry than it was 100 years ago i mean if you go back in time we burned wood and then we burned coal and then we moved to oil and natural gas and so we're going to move to hydrogen and we're going to move to solar we're going to move to wind so the mix is going to be different but energy is still important and we do it well we do it well in Alberta. We have some of the best tradesmen and women in Calgary, in Canada, or the world, I guess you'd say. Oh yeah, absolutely right. So there's, you know, there's wonderful skill sets here, but it's difficult. Everything's difficult, right? Pipelines are really difficult. New projects are really difficult. Uh, and so I think that if we circle back to the initial thought, you know, if we talk to my uncle or my dad or my grandpa, they would look at our world today and they'd scratch their head and they said, what a surprise, right? What a surprise. How did it come to this? It it is sad. It is. I feel like that's a different conversation we could go on. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then uh, we probably need more time for that. Exactly. You, you started, or you've been at this firm for 40 years. What made you get started and find the interest of being a lawyer? Well, when I was a little guy, um, I liked to be a planner, right? So I always thought, you know, I, I need to have a plan. And I, you know, I thought even in grades five and six, you know, maybe I'll be a doctor, maybe I'll be a teacher, maybe I'll be a lawyer. And I thought that law would be something that would work well for me. I like to speak. I like to argue. I like to research. I like to write. I like history. And that all kind of blends it's together and, and lends itself to this. So I was always interested in, in being a lawyer as early as grade seven or eight. And I took public speaking lessons and joined the debate society, went into public speaking competitions and it, and it worked out really well. And so I, uh, you know, wrote the LSAT and got into law school. And then um, when I graduated from law school, I got an opportunity at McLeod Dixon. So I articled here at McLeod Dixon in the energy group. And then I said, that was great. I'd like a year off. So I took a year off, went over to England, did my master's and uh, got married. And uh, my wife and I, for our honeymoon, we hitchhiked across Africa. And, you know, prior to that, right after law school, I had taught school in India. And so I, I always had a bit of a wanderlust. And whether that, I don't think that came from my dad. It might have come from my grandpa, you know, as a soldier. But uh, I always enjoyed traveling. And when I went to India, to teach at that little Jesuit school in the Himalayas. And then when Sam and I got married and we hitchhiked across East Africa, I think we were four months living in a tent. We spent 800 bucks. And so we kind of got that travel bug at that time. And before we had kids, you know, we'd go to Pakistan and then we'd go to Tibet and, and we went down to South America and we paddled down the, the Black River, the Rio Negro. And uh, it's always been an interesting uh, part of ours. And, and then you start a family and you start a career. And so law was always there for me. And I did that for, I think, 15 or 16 years. And then I said, I think I need to learn something new. And so we sold everything and we took our four kids and we moved to Qatar. We moved to Doha. And I worked for the government of uh, Qatar, at Qatar Petroleum. And then when I came back to Canada, it was 2001 and 2002, and Canada was a leader in energy technology. 
And so there was lots of domestic work, but there was even more international work. And so there were projects in Kurdistan, in Iraq, projects in Iran until the sanctions, projects in Trinidad, projects in Nigeria, projects in Siberia. And I found that not only could we do the projects from Calgary, we could be affordable and we could have you know, access to good knowledge, but um, there was also a, a bit of a business opportunity for training. And so I would, I would go to Afghanistan and I would do a project to train the people of Afghanistan, the, the ministry there on best oil and gas practices. And I did the same thing in Siberia and in Uruguay. And I think over the years, probably 50 different countries around the world they'd fly you over and they'd say, this is our oil and gas regime. This is how we do it in Somalia. What, uh, what should we do to attract investment? What are investors uh, upset by, worried by? How, how do we make it more competitive? And so that's what I've been doing the last uh, 20 years. And it's been a nice, a nice opportunity till, till COVID. Till COVID. Til COVID. I mean, the other day you were just on the phone with Yemen, then you're like London. And in between, we had some time to chat. Are you always talking around the world daily? <laughs> yeah, yeah, almost not hourly. There's Grandpa's clock. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but certainly daily. And and the big projects these days are Kurdistan, which is a semi-autonomous region in Iraq, Yemen, which is very interesting because uh, you know a lot of people are trying to get out of Yemen. We're getting into Yemen, uh, Nigeria, because uh, they need help reforming their legislation, and uh, Trinidad. So those are really the big four projects. Now, how was family life when you kept traveling around and this and that? Was it tough to keep family together during that time? Uh, for my immediate family, it was really nice. I mean, the, the challenge was when we were in Qatar, um, it was the war. The second Gulf War had broken up, right? And so a lot of the expat families, so you know, Exxon would move there. Um, their expat families back to the U.S. and Total would move their expat families back to France. And uh, with uh, UP, we just stayed in uh, Qatar. We spent some time during one of the big bombing strikes. We moved into Oman to get a little further away. Um, but it was it was a great time for us, and and the kids loved it because we'd be sitting around, and we had no television and not a lot of distractions, and just little kids, and they say, you know we're bored, you know, there's not nothing to do. I said, well, let's go see the pyramids this weekend. So we get tickets and we just fly the family pyro and we go and see the pyramids. And we say, let's go to Kathmandu. And we say, well, we take the kids to Kathmandu and show them Mount Everest. And so they, they I think, appreciated that um, and all have an interest in, in travel and in the world. And well, then- Oh, sure, absolutely. Now, the, now some of them were, were you know, smallish. But the other thing that my wife and I did is because of all the travel that we do, or that I do, for years and years, there's lots of air miles there. And so when the kids, you know, reached eight or nine, we'd say, what do you want to see? And we'll show it to you. So the eldest Cleo said, I'd like to see Mount Everest. So my wife and Cleo flew over to Nepal and she was eight, I think at the time. And they trekked into base camp. And Jake said, I want to see Chelsea play in London. So we flew over to 
London and watch Chelsea play. The third one, Lulu, who's at Oxford now, she says, I'd like to see Hollywood. I said, well, I don't want to do Hollywood. So my wife took her to Hollywood. And the littlest one said, I'd like to see the Eiffel Tower. I took the littlest one to Paris. So, you know, they've been, uh, you know, they miss having her dad around. But usually when I'm in Calgary, you know, I'm, I'm present and involved and engaged. And it worked out really well. Have you ever thought of moving away from Canada and permanently living somewhere else or no? You know, I don't think so. I still think this is this is my kind of place, right? I like the mountains. I like riding my horses. I like exploring, uh, you know, on snowshoes with my wife. We disappear, uh, you know, almost every weekend. And, and, you know, when you look at schools and you look at education, it's a great place to raise a family. Now, that being said, you know, to be candid, all my kids have EU passports and uh, my kids are at school now in, in England, at Oxford and Cambridge. And I don't know that they'll come back here, to be candid. I think a generation ago, when I was just getting out of university, you'd say Western Canada and Calgary and Alberta, I, I can't think of a better opportunity. Right? And now you fast forward to 2021 and the kids say, you know, what's the future of Western Canada? What's the future of Calgary? What's the future of Alberta? And it's a different future. And so with the EU passports and uh, Oxbridge education, I suspect that some of them will come back, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the kids stay overseas. I think they're thinking globally instead of, like you said, coming back home and there's no opportunities. What is the opportunity here? Yeah, yeah. Well, very different. You're exactly right. It's, it's a very different world. During COVID, did you and your wife stay home at all or were you guys always on the go on the weekends? Yeah, we, um, we've been pretty active and my COVID year has been a pretty good year. And I kind of hate to say that, but we had, I had good series of meetings in Cairo in January. And then I came back and I was supposed to do something in Siberia in, in uh, March and then, you know, kind of COVID struck. And so March and April and May and everybody thought, oh, this will be 60 days or 90 days. Um, but it wasn't. And so, I said, well, we've got to figure something out. Like, like how are we going to have an adventure? And, you know, a, a classic example is um, when they canceled the stampede, I phoned my friend uh, Dewey, who's a new friend who runs the Anchor D Ranch. And I said, Dewey, I got all these middle-aged men and we're going to miss our stampede. I'd like to rent 25 horses. I'd like to rent 10 tents and two cooks and five wranglers. And I'd like to put together a trip through the mountains on horseback of three days. So at any event, you know, so that was a great event. And, and then I'm looking around and I phone some of the chuck wagon guys I, that I know because I do the photography for the chuck wagons. And I said, I really miss the chuck wagon races. Let me know if you're going to do anything. And he says, we're going to have COVID safe chuck wagon races on the Poundmaker Reserve in northern Saskatchewan. Why don't you come up? So my wife and I went up there and they had the Indian relay, which is magnificent. And they had the chuck wagon races. And I, you know, did some photography and I was talking to Ross Knight and I said, look, it, let me know if you need an outrider. He says, dude, you can't be an outrider. You want to ride in the wagon with me? So I hopped into the wagon and we finished second in our heat, you know, and it was just a, a great event. So it was a completely different adventure or holiday than I had anticipated, but camping there at, at the Poundmaker Reserve in Northern Saskatchewan was just great. 
And what was the ride along like? Like the speed, the power of these horses. What was that? Oh, it's magnificent. Oh, it's really fun. It's really fun. And I, you know, I wanted to capture the the, the moment, and I'm always wanting to take a picture. And I remember on the in the third turn, I said, "Well, I'm going to pull out my phone," and I just about fell off the chuck wagon. You know, and I said, "Well, I better I better tuck this away." You know, and and Ross had said, "Look at you know, if uh, two things, be uh, braced for the for the." the start because the horses take off like rocket ships and they throw you back. Right? So be braced for the start and then don't fall out. Cause I can't go get you. I said, okay, fair enough. So that's what we did. But, but it was a, it was a great, uh, a great, but different summer holiday. Are you worried about our Western culture and heritage fading in Alberta? Oh, I think I am. To be honest, I think that I am. And, you know, one of the associations that I follow along is kind of the, you know, the Rodeo Defense League. And, you know, there's no doubt that uh, people are sensitive to these issues. And I understand that. I appreciate that. But there's also uh, no doubt that it gets a very bad reputation unfairly. And, and you know, as, as we said at the outset of this conversation, you know, my grandpa and my great grandpa would look at the things that upset people and how difficult it is to get to the truth. And whether it's a pipeline or a project mm-hmm. or, you know, an animal rights issue, it's hard to get to the truth. And so when I worked with the, with the stampede and the Chuck Wayne committee, you're astounded at the, the number of vets involved and the testing and the safety and the procedures that are put in place to keep the animals safe. And, you know, those animals, and you look at the horses actually from the stampede and the born to buck program. I mean, those are, are magnificent athletes and they just love to race and to buck. And, you know, they have a a very uh, exciting and interesting existence and it is a great sport. And I can see it being attacked from side, from both sides unfairly and, you know, based in part on fact and on, in part on fiction. And that's troubling. You've had a love for the Calgary Stampede. I'm going to pull this up here for the viewers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Do you see that, Thomas? Yeah, I sure do. Yeah, there we are. All right. Who are these cute three boys here? <laughs> so that I, I always talk about... The big four and the fact that everybody in Calgary knows the big four and nobody knows the little three, but that's the little three. So I've got three brothers. So there's four boys and two sisters. And this is a picture of me. So I'm on the, uh, I'm the tallest one there, there in the middle is my brother, Steve, who's a doctor, who's got Mayfair MRI. And the little guy there in that picture, that's my brother, John, who's a professor up at, at Grant McEwen University. And I think we're getting ready to go to the Calgary Stampede Parade. And this is probably 1966, maybe, or 1967. I'm not sure exactly what year it is. That's our little photo. Are you guys, as a family, very tight still? Oh, yeah, we are. Particularly when, um, in the pre-COVID days, you know, when mom and dad, when dad was alive. And we'd have Sunday dinners, you know, as a family, regularly every Sunday almost we would get together and there used to be the adult table and then there used to be the little kid table and then there used to be the middle kid table and you'd love to see 
you know, the grandkids as they move from little kid table to middle kid table up to the adult table. And so it, it you know, it's a big family. I mean, we're a big family. And dad was all about family. And, uh, you know, on that basis, um, we were always close. And we still are close. I mean, my brother Steve lives across the back fence. So it's like Walton's. And my brother Paul just lives down the road and kind of across the river. So it's, it's like the old Walton's. And your sisters, are they all in Calgary as well? They are, yeah. So one of them is in Lakeview, and she teaches at Bishop Carroll, which is our old high school. And my other sister, she's also in Calgary, and she's got a graphic design and the media consulting business. You grew up in Lakeview as well? or Grew up in Lakeview. Yeah, well, we were Westgate when we were real little guys. That little picture was from Westgate. Yes, I see and that. We were Lakeview. We were St. Leo's. We were St. James. We were Bishop Carroll. Wow, interesting. Now, where did this love for the stampede photography start? Have you always been a photographer? or I, I've always liked photography, ever since I was a little guy. Yeah, and I remember being in... Uh, probably grade six. I don't know when you're a Calgary Herald delivery boy and I'd save my Calgary Herald money and I bought a camera and I run around and take pictures. And I, I've always liked photography and I don't know why that is. And, and similarly, I've always liked the stampede. And my mom used to say, you know, I was born in the middle of July, July 15, I was born Holy Cross Hospital one evening during the fireworks. So she said, I could hear the fireworks when I went into labor and delivered you. And so, you you know, you were you came into this world during the fireworks. So that's why you like the stampede so much. And uh, then when, uh, sorry? Oh, sorry. I was going to say, out of all your siblings, are you the one that loves the stampede the most? Oh, I don't know. I think my brother Steve and my brother Paul. Uh, I think all all three of us, we, we really enjoy it. John's up in Edmonton, so it's a little bit different for him. And Anne and Catherine, I think that they like it, but... The brothers, uh, Tom, Steve, and Paul, we really enjoy the stampede and, um, and always have. Were you able to find your grandfather's camera ever? That would be pretty cool. Yeah, never did. No, never did. I, I think it was around somewhere. We found all of his old slides, but I never did find his old, old camera. <laughs> that would be interesting to see what yeah. it looked like. <laughs> oh, that'd be a great, be a great little artifact. Um, and so, you know, I, I was interested in photography and I was interested in the stampede. And then my uncle Baz has land right by Spruce Meadows and had cattle. Mm -hmm. And so my brother, Steve and John and Paul and I, we used to go out and work the branding and we'd help, you know, brand the cattle. And there was this old Western singer named Wilf Carter. And Wilf Carter was a friend of the family. And, you know, he was probably in his 70s at the time, late 60s or 70s, I don't really know. And so after the branding, he would sing these great old cowboy songs. And Wilf Carter used to be known as Montana Slim. And so he'd sing these old songs. And I thought that that was great. Do you still have one of his records around? Well, I've got, I've got them on my phone now. Oh, yeah. and, and so I learned all the songs yeah. so that the next branding afterwards, we, we sit around the fire having our dinner. And we would, uh, he'd sing, yeah, there's a wolf card. So he'd, uh, he'd sing his songs and I'd join them. And they just thought that was great. So they used to call me Little Wolf. But he was Big Wolf and I was Little Wolf. Yeah. What was one of your favorite songs by him? Well, the one I like the most is Dynamite Trail, which is about the chuck wagons. Ah. Right? The, the, the song is called Dynamite Trail. And so I kind of like that cowboy thing. And then when I went out to Vancouver to UBC, 
you know, I had snakeskin cowboy boots. I'd wear to class. I had my cowboy hat and a storm rider. And in those days, they would know you're from Calgary because all the kids from Calgary had storm riders. Oh yeah. <laughs> and and so I've 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 enjoyed it and I've kind of gotten into it and then fallen away from it. But the the real rekindling was doing a project in London, and we had dinner with these investment bankers from London. We just listed a client on the London Stock Exchange. It's called the AIM Exchange. And these investment bankers said, you know, tell us about Calgary. And my friend Paul and I, we looked at them and we said, we're not going to tell you. We'll show you. Come for the stampede. So these guys, they didn't come out. They sent their assistants out. And these assistants came out the next stampede. And we took them to the chuck wagons. And we took them to the rodeo. We took them hiking in the mountains. They said, this was a great holiday, thanks. I said, we're not done yet. we got to go to Dewey's and ride horses. So we went down to Dewey's and put them on horses and rode through the mountains. And it was just great. And so whenever I get somebody from out of town, from New York or from California or from London, put them on a horse. I take them down to Longview and put them on a horse. And I said, let's just ride through the mountains. And, and, it, and it really is magical. Have you ever got worried that... Calgary would move out there and push Longview even tighter. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think in this day and age. I, I mean, it, it's a fair distance away. I mean, yeah. you certainly see that around Spruce Meadows. I mean, mm -hmm. I remember when Spruce Meadows was, you know, it was way outside the city limits. And now every time I go down there, you know, it's bumping right up against Spruce Meadows. Uh, so you do see, you know, the city of Calgary just by virtue of of its continued growth, moving further and further south. So I do see that. But you don't, you won't, you don't see Longview being. I, I don't, I don't see him getting that, that. That I don't think the folks of Longview would like that. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. Yeah. Now, I may want to show you this. Yeah. That, so there I am, grade eleven. Oh, it's you riding. It's me in grade eleven. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you can tell it's the seventies because see how big the hats are. Right in the, in the 70s, everybody had a big, tall cowboy hat. So I think this is on, uh, I think this is on the Sarcia Reserve. And I remember my friend Tyrone Waite, uh, mm -hmm. who now lives in Ontario. Um, his father, uh, Justice Jack Waite, who was a judge here in Calgary for, for many years. Tyrone found out about this. He said, you know what, you can go on to the Sarcia Reserve Wednesday night, and they'll teach you how to ride steers and bulls. And so I said, okay, well, I'm, I'm all over that. So I went in there, and that was, my, uh, <laughs> that was my, my kickoff into the rodeo world. And I remember this night because I got thrown, I got stepped on, I got my backside all cut up, and uh, it was tough to sit down for the next couple of days. What is it like <laughs> being on such a powerful, magnificent creature? Well, it, it was fun. Now, that being said, you know, when you're a 17-year-old male or a 16-year-old male, I mean, you don't have an awful lot of judgment, right? <laughs> and so it was probably bad judgment at the time. And I was never very good. I mean, I, I enjoyed the ambiance and I enjoyed the excitement, but I was never really much of a cowboy. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I wanted to try something new. And so these guys said, yeah, we'll, we'll let you climb into the chutes and turn you out. So that's what I would do. Now, how did you start shooting the rodeos? Because what you do is magnificent, Thomas. It's beautiful work. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that. Um, and thank you for that. 
uh, I wanted to try and, um, you know, find a new area of photography. So I've been climbing mountains for many, many years, probably for 30 years I've been climbing mountains. And I always have my camera and uh, take a lot of pictures. And when um, I kind of gravitated back to the stampede, I went and met with the stampede and I said, you know, I'd like to be a volunteer. And, and you know, there's lots of people that want to volunteer. And I said, I think my best use is as a photographer. Can I be a photographer, a volunteer photographer for the stampede? And they say, well, we have professionals and they've got some great professionals, but we could also use some volunteers. So it's okay, that's great. So to get ready for that, because I didn't want to show up and be a disaster, that summer, so two years ago, I said, I better learn some skills. And so I started to go to all the small rodeos. So I go to Sutsina, which is my favorite. I do the powwow and the rodeo. I went to Brooks. I go to Innisfail, which is great. I went to Strathmore and I kind of learned my, my skills. And there's a very talented photographer here in Calgary, Covey Moore. I watch his stuff. And in the States, there's a guy named Matt Cohen. And he does these workshops online. I follow that. And they teach you, you know, the importance of getting close, the importance of showing a different angle, right? They say, don't show what you can see on TV. Like, show a different angle. Get down low. Make the animal look big and powerful. Don't shoot from up high because that makes the cowboy look bigger and the animal mm -hmm. look Get your depth of field right because you don't want to have a confusing background. You want to the eye of the, the viewer to be drawn towards the animal or drawn towards the, the cowboy, the rider. And so I would just play around with different things and I make lots of mistakes, but bit by bit uh, you learn and then you fine tune. And uh, now I really enjoy it. It gives, gives me a lot of happiness. I come back from Strathmore. I went out and did their, they had bull riding in September yeah, and uh, it was a COVID friendly bull riding event. And I came back and my wife says, man, you sure have fun out there. So, so this, I think, is in Brooks. And, you know, you want to get, uh, and this is probably not a great photo, but it's not a bad photo. You want to. I love what you got the kick. And look how low yeah. you are to get that kick with the dirt. Yeah, so you, that's exactly right. So, you know, if people are interested in the photography, yeah. get low to the ground and shoot up. Trying focus on that animal, look at the, the face of that animal, look at the power of that animal. Try and pick a aperture that'll blur the background. I didn't do a very good job on that one, but you know, you get a sense. Yeah. And then look at it as an artist as opposed to kind of a news reporter. So rather than just show what you would see on TV, try and show it as a as a little bit of art. Thomas, are you usually <laughs> shooting at 2.8 with this? Well, I think that my uh my focusing skills and even the autofocus on my camera is quite good. This is probably an F4. F4. Yeah. And do you shoot ISO 100 usually if you can? No, usually what I'll do now as the cameras get better and better is I let the ISO move up and down. Mm -hmm. So they, they have kind of, a, you know, a flexible ISO setting. So I'll try and shoot at F4. I'll try and say, I don't want the shutter speed to be any lower than one, 2000. If, if I'm outdoors and it's nice and bright. So I think this is in, I think this is in high river. I think this is at high river. 
And, and just uh, for the listener, I mean, the way these guys, uh, these horses and bulls move, it's hard to capture this. It's not yeah, easy. yeah, it really is. Yeah, it really is. But yeah, you know, um, it, it's kind of interesting. And, and the more you do it, and I met this, these guys who were bullfighters, and they've kind of become friends of mine. And I did this little bullfighting clinic with them. But, you know, they would give you pointers. So they'd say, this bull's going to come out and spin to the left. So I would know where to position. Mm-hmm. And a bull will take jump a jump and then go into a spin whereas a saddle bronc will move across the plane of the infield so you know you have to know your sport and you have to know your animal a little bit and you've got to be prepared to anticipate you know just like when you're photographing uh, hockey or football you want to anticipate the play so it's almost the same with respect to your rodeo let me see this Hey, look at these. I mean, wow. Where so was this, this is, at? This is Tsutsina. So this is the Powell at Tsutsina. And uh, I, it was two or three years ago, mm-hmm. and I wanted to work on my photography. So there was a workshop run by Todd Crawl at the camera, shop, camera store. And uh, they said, you know, come out to Tsutsina for the powwow and the rodeo. And so I drove out to Tsutsina, you know, right by Redwood Meadows. And I said, well, I'll focus on the rodeo. You know, I don't really think I know how to do a, a powwow photography session. And it turned about just the diff- just the opposite. The, the powwow was magnificent. And the drumming and the dance and the colors, it was just great. And he said, you know, you need to go as a portrait photographer and build a rapport with your subject. If you just walk up and say, click, 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 you'll insult them. And this guy, he's a nice young guy. And I said, your regalia is magnificent. Tell me about it. He said, well, it came to me in a dream. And he said, I kind of had a vision of this animal. And I experimented with the, with the paint. And I experimented with the color. And then this paint worked with this color. And, and he said, I'm very proud of it. I said, can I take a picture? And that's right against the food court. <laughs> at the Sutsina Powell. And, you know, it's a great, great memory, right? Look and then, of course, they, they do the dance, right? And so the dance, it, it starts off slowly and then it builds up and then the different groups come in and join the dance. And it was just great. This guy, I love this guy, uh, White Buffalo. And I said, you know, uh, he didn't interrupt his dance, but I got down nice and low. And you can see, you know, the, the little arena where the, where the dance takes place there. So the light's coming in from, from the top. That's the sun coming in. And the shadows kind of fall to the left and the right. So it sort of draws the eye towards a pyramid or a triangle. Yes. And, uh, yeah, this was, this was a great day. And I had friends that phoned from London, England. And they said, we're in Calgary. We just got a couple of days. What do you recommend? I said, go to the powwow. You're right in town for the Tsutsina powwow. And he said, what is a powwow? What are you talking about? I said, look, here's what you do. You're staying at the West End, rent a car, get on the highway, drive out there. It's 45 minutes. It'll astound you. And the woman wrote back and she said, she was a friend of a friend. I'd never met her. She said, that is the most memorable thing from our trip to Canada. The kids still talk about going to the powwow, right? 
and you sit there on the floor and the music and the drumming and the dancers and the sense of community, it's just magical. My favorite time of the year. That's on the way to Break Creek, isn't it? On the last Yeah, one? exactly right. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. You're like right in the shoots here, Thomas. Yeah, exactly right. So this is, you know, I, I don't want to get this wrong. This is Strathmore. You can tell because of the green and yellow shoots. And so I phoned up Strathmore and I said, my name's Tom. I'm a volunteer for the Calgary Stampede. Can I be your volunteer photographer? And they said, mm -hmm. sure, you come on out. And so I've been out there um, to a couple of their events and they're great events. And I love that. I love that, that, uh, that stampede at Strathmore. It's just a wonderful event. Look at this. You got him off his feet. Yeah. It's like a rocket ship, right? It He's is. coming out of the shoots like a rocket ship. This is beautiful. I mean. Yeah. So that's at Sutsina. So that's at Sutsina. So that is the powwow. And then the powwow, uh, it starts to, tail off a little bit and then you just kind of run across and you go into the uh the rodeo grounds and mm -hmm. uh it was the end of the afternoon and the sun was strong and hot and the riders go back and forth you know and they're exercising the horses and they're picking up dust and so the sunset plus the clouds plus the dust plus the riders and then I said, I'm going to use that. Sometimes you look for a natural frame. Yes. And I'm going to use that gate as my natural frame. And so I just jumped in and took that. And picture. just look at the trees and the shadows. It's yeah. beautiful. This is like a shot that, wow. It's it's printable, definitely. Yeah, it's right there. It's on the wall. <laughs> right, I'm going to have to get a, a full size if you sell them or whatnot. Yeah, I would love uh, to print one. Yeah, I'll gift them to you. No oh, problem. You. I always do. Yeah, so we saw that. Um, oh, look at this. And this is, this was great. So I don't know if this is, I think it's the Millerville Rodeo. I don't know if it's the Okotoks Rodeo at Millerville or the Millerville Rodeo at Okotoks. I think this is in Millerville. And it's a beautiful little rodeo ground. And I went there. And these kids, so they have, um, I think that the father or maybe the uncle is the bullfighter. And so he has that that same coloring and then when they have the mutton busting for the little kids these are the bullfighters for the mutton busting so those kids are just walking down the, the plank and they're getting ready to go into the arena for their their performance and i said oh yeah that, i gotta get that picture so i ran after them now you shoot with a nikon have you have you ever broken a lens by doing any of this stuff? Oh, look uh, you know what? It's funny you say that because I've broken all sorts of stuff. And in fact, I've had my Nikon for years and years. And this spring, I was kayaking from Banff to Canmore with a buddy of mine. And I flipped the kayak and I damaged the camera and damaged the lens. And then a week later, I had my backup camera and lens and I was at Dewey's. He said, let's go, we'll race the horses that we took off. And I'm not a very good rider. And the camera came over my shoulder onto the horn of the saddle, like, oh. like the hammer of Thor hitting an anvil. And so I went to the camera store and I went to the repair department. I said, this one, water damage, flipped the kayak. This camera, water damage, flipped the kayak. This one, horse damage, hit the saddle. He said, okay, we'll send them away for repairs. I said, now, do you guys rent? He said, not to you, we don't. <laughs> so they wouldn't rent to me. So I had to buy some new equipment. They couldn't fix any of them. So I no. And my wife said, you know, 
I know you have fun with your photography, but you you know the last two weekends have cost us about four thousand dollars. <laughs> it's not cheap. It's not a cheap no, hobby. It's not cheap. Now look at this shot. This is it's Calgary Stampede. At the... Exactly right. And the rain has just started, and then it got hot. Uh, you know, more and more uh, heavier and heavier, more and more rainy. And so I said, well, I got to get that image. So I just got into that first turn, and and a lot of people like the first turn uh, for photography. You try to get four four wide, and then I wanted the Calgary Stampede logo on the grandstand in the background, and then I got down to the, close to the dirt because I wanted the dirt to give the sense of, you know, the muckiness, the muddiness. Yeah. And then as the rain came down, I said, okay, I'm going to get a picture of this race. And so that How low were you to the ground? Were you kneeling or... Yeah, so I usually, I'll either get right on my belly. This one, I don't think I'm on my belly. I think that I'm probably on... You shoot under the rail for that. I'm just looking at this. I said, when are we going to see this again, eh, Thomas? Yeah. Well, I hope it's this year. I'm, I'm really counting on it. It may be different, but I'm sure hoping that it's this year. Yeah. Now, let's see some of these. Oh, look at that. Eh? Yeah. So this one, again, you know, um, I, I love this image because the start and when you're right down there, so that's in the chutes, essentially where the outriders come and grow. So when they close the gate and the outriders are then in the infield, I always get right through and I poke my lens through the gate. And then barrel number two usually comes right at me. And so this is a shot. They're just round. I think that's barrel number two. And you've got the grounds and the grandstand. And you've got the little Calgary Stampede logo. And so, yeah, I like, I like that. Can uh, you feel the ground <laughs> shaking? Oh yeah, you really can. You really can. <laughs> I mean, it is uh, it is magnificent. I really enjoy the turtle lights. These are pretty. Oh, look at that! That's another one. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So that's Dewey. That's Dewey. That's from my weekend ride. And uh, when I phoned him and I mm -hmm. said, you know, Dewey, we're really we're really missing our stampede. I want to put something together. And he said, okay. So we put together that three-day ride into the Blue Rock Mountains uh, from Turner Valley. You, you kind of meet at Yanker D there. And then we trailer the horses into the Blue Rock. And then we hop on horses and we rode for all of the Friday, uh, Friday afternoon, all of the Saturday, and then half of the Sunday. And this is where we camp, right by this little creek. We put all our beer. If we, if I turned the camera around, you'd see all sorts of beer sitting in the creek. <laughs> cool. And it's such a majestic place, and this shot just shows it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a great. It was a great event. It really is, you know, wonderful. Yeah, I'm just saying. Look at that sun just creeping sun, out yeah. over there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. oh beautiful. So th this is you know where this is. This is at Johnny Scott's. Oh, no way. Right? You interviewed Johnny Scott. Yes, I did. Yeah. 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 So um, I was looking around and Ingrid, who you know, who yeah. I know, Ingrid has the Out West Fest, right? The Way Out West Fest. Way and out. She, yeah. She has a photo workshop and I phoned her up and I said, I'm, I'm totally going to do that. So I've been to it twice and I think that this was the year that we've shot it at the Scott Ranch. And the rain came through, and uh, there's puddles everywhere. 
And then the sun came out. And as they were moving the horses around, I said, you know what, if I get on my belly, I think that's a, I think that's horse manure right there in the bottom left-hand corner, that little lump there. <laughs> and I said, if I get close to the ground and kind of focus the camera lens on the reflection, I said, I bet I can get something magical. So that's what I did. Yeah, that's a shot. Perfect. Yeah, it was I'm going to have to put these up. It's, oh, wow. That's, that's not, that's not Calgary. Oh. That's Innisfail. That is Innisfail. And Innisfail is great. And, you know, I always talk about my friend Paul Bay. He had uh, clients mm -hmm. visiting from Trinidad. Mm. And uh, they'd never seen a rodeo. And he said, you want to, you know, help me? We're going to take these guys out for lunch. I said, don't take them for lunch. Let's take them to a rodeo. So we picked them up and we drove up to Innisfail. And we just sat there. And you sit right on the grass if you want to on the other side of the fence. And so that was a... I know we got to get going here soon, but not only does do you and your wife go hiking, you guys bring your your fur babies with you. Yeah, yeah, the corks, yeah, the adventure corks. You're exactly right. Yeah. And I think you posted something recently, and they they got what three thousand. Uh, yeah, they they got to the top of Prairie Mountain, and I think that's seven thousand two hundred feet. Wow. So, yeah, they're they're good, and. Uh, you know, Cleo, my eldest, our eldest, had uh, this little corgi, got it in Wales when she was at school over there. And my wife said, well, maybe we should get a, uh, a corgi. I said, are you kidding me? A corgi? Like in the grand scheme of dogs, that's way yeah. <laughs> But she said, you know, here's that corgi you wanted. And John came from Grand Prairie. So John the corgi's here from Grand Prairie. Honey the corgi's here from Wales. And they've been great. Every weekend, they just fall, and they're herding dogs, so they stay with the group, and they're kind of a working dog, so they're eight kilometers or 10 kilometers or 12 kilometers, not too much for them, and uh, they're so little, their legs are so little that when we walk through the snow, they're like Hot Wheels on a Hot Wheels track. They can't, <laughs> they can't really go off, and if they get into the deep snow, it, they need a snorkel, right, because the snow is, is higher than they are, and so they've been great. How old are they? So they're both two and a half. They're within a couple of months of each other. So I think they're two and a half. They'll be three this this uh, summer, this June. Did you grow up with dogs? Never did. No, we never did. And, and mom and dad, we never had a dog in the house. And then uh, when Sam and I first got married, she'd always say, you know, we should get a dog. And I said, oh, you know, I'm busy and you're busy. I don't know if we need a dog. And then one Valentine's Day, she says, here's that dog you wanted. So she gave, <laughs> gave me Dave the Beagle. So we had Dave the Beagle for 10 or 12 years and then no dogs. And now we've got two in the house and it's really nice. It's yes. a nice addition. I saw a, a post that you had done a while ago about you and your wife's anniversary, 39 years. Well, we were married in 88. Oh, eight. Okay. Yeah. 30. What is, what is um, the, the key or the ingredient to keep a relationship together? And, you know, you guys travel together, you hike together. What's, yeah. And, and you know what, uh, some people say that, um, you know, or Sam will say sometimes that the secret is having me away <laughs> because I'm away so much, it makes it easier, but you know, we're like-minded, right? So when we were, you know, first dating, we were interested, we'd run marathons together. When we got married, you know, we say, what do you want to do for a honeymoon? And Sam said, well, why don't we go travel across Africa? You know, here's a tent and here's a stove. We'll hitchhike across Africa we paddled down the Amazon together or the Rio Negro, which is in the Amazon uh, basin wow. there. 
We traveled across Pakistan together. We went into Tibet together. We lived in Qatar, you know, and explored the world together. So we're kind of like-minded and we don't get too, too fussed. If, you, if I'm away for a week, I mean, I've had, I've had trips where, um, you know, I'd be away for six weeks. I had one trip a couple of years ago and I ended up going around the earth twice and came back six weeks later, but it works out just fine. And so we do lots of things together well, and we do lots of things apart well. And, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's worked out really well. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, I appreciate your time today, Thomas. <laughs> yeah, no, my pleasure. Nice to see you, Zach.